Just had a great conversation with Leilani Farha. Not a household name, but you never know. She may become a household name. And we're actually going to hear from her on Friday on London Live. She's going to come on the show, but she is somebody who is an absolute jumble of energy. She's fantastic, and she's doing some pretty big things. If you look at global warming, this is not global warming. And anyone who says, hey, there's no global warming, it snowed in Colorado yesterday, tell them to look up what global warming is, please. But that has nothing to do with it. We talked a few weeks ago on London Live about housing issues, and we looked into rent control, we looked into rent prices, and we looked at some concerns people have about the rise of prices. Can you imagine being somebody trying to get into the housing market right now, given the jump that we've seen in southwestern Ontario. For property owners, it's fantastic. For anybody who's not a property owner, it's not getting any easier. And it hasn't been easy in places like Toronto and Vancouver and Calgary. And can I go to the United States? New York? You want to rent an apartment in New York? What you rent for about 800 bucks here, 1000 bucks here? Yeah, try a whole lot more than that. Try maybe four and $5,000 a month just in rent, and things get even crazier. Go to California. It gets nutty. So what exactly is going on here? Well, one of the things that Leilani has been a part of is a movie, and it's a documentary, and it's called Push the Film. You can actually look it up. Push the Film is the web address. And what it examines is the fact that you have had following, remember in the United States when people could say, yeah, I'd like a mortgage and I'd like a really, really nice house. Oh, okay. And what is your income? Oh, just a second. Let me write that down for you. Uh, $750,000. Yeah, that's, that's what I make. Give me that mortgage. And they would. And they wouldn't really check into that whole $750,000 thing. The person could have been making $17,000 a year. It didn't matter. So what did you have? Well, you had the housing crisis. You had people walking away from mortgages. What happened then? Well, investors decided to get in. And not somebody who's going to buy a property and fix it up and flip it for a profit. We're talking serious investors. We're talking investors that aren't even quite human, like hedge funds. And vulture funds. And they started investing. And then things began to roll for them. And they began to look around and they decided to invest basically all over the world. And we have all kinds of major hedge funds, vulture funds. I don't even know what other kind of funds there are. But they're owning property. And in doing so... They're either fixing things up and raising the rent, or in some places where you do not have any kind of rent control, they will wait for someone to leave, and then they will jack up the rent, or they'll find other ways to jack up the rent. And the next thing you know, you've got people who just can't afford it. And housing prices have skyrocketed. Remember in BC, they had to make changes to legislation so that you couldn't just own a property and leave it vacant. So there have been changes like that. The reason being... There were a lot of people from Asia who were doing that just as investments. And that takes down the supply. And in the supply and demand market, when there is still demand, the cost goes up. It's a pretty simplistic formula. And it's been working very, very well. And a lot of people are getting very, very wealthy doing it. So what do we do? How does this 
How does this change? Well, we're not sure, but Push the Film looks into it. So on Friday, that's something we're going to be focusing in on. Today, though, all kinds of things to do. In less than an hour from now, we will be joined by the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Mr. Andrew Scheer, will be on London Live today. We are going to continue our road toward donating blood. Yesterday, we went through the process. Today, we're going to speak with someone who has donated blood over 40 times. And if anybody knows what it's like, he'll tell us. And he'll tell us what brought him to doing it as often as he is. Over 40 times. His brother donated over 100 times before the introduction of a medication made it impossible for him to donate under the rules that keep all of the blood safe. So we'll talk about that. We'll find out more about the Dream Lottery. And in about a half hour from now, we're going to be joined by Reno Mandani. And Reno Madani is is a fantastic person to speak with, but she has definitely made news today. You've been hearing it on all of our newscasts. You just heard Jacqueline LaBell talking about it. Reno Madani is the chief commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And if you haven't caught the story yet, then let me explain it very quickly. If you have, please bear with me for a second because it is important. You know the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center is called a lot of names, none of them flattering. No one walks in or out of the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center and says, you know what, the next time I want to book a vacation, that's where I want to go. I love it there. No one says that. In fact, they say quite the opposite. The conditions are awful, appalling. You may have heard Kevin Egan, who is a London lawyer who has represented a number of individuals associated with issues that have developed right through to deaths at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center, and we can count them up. In far too recent memory, we've had 14. So, Reynou Mandani, Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, took a tour, walked through the EMDC. And if you've ever been through any prison, it is, it's different when you walk in the doors. But she has been through a number of them. So she has a way to compare. And when she came out of this particular tour around, which may have been a little bit different than your five-bit tour, your nickel-and-dime tour that MPPs get, I don't know. I don't know what they've been getting. But she was able to go everywhere. She was able to talk with correctional officers. She was able to speak with inmates. She was able to try to get as full a picture as possible as to what the conditions are actually like. And then when she left that tour, what was the first thing she did? She sat down. She wrote a letter to Sylvia Jones, the Ontario Solicitor General, and it outlined the conditions. We'll talk with her about that, and we have since been sent to our 980 CFPL newsroom a statement, let's call it, from Marion Ringette, who is the press secretary of the office of the Solicitor General, and we'll read that to you and what their response has been. But we'll talk with Renu Mandani in now less than a half hour. Up next, I want to revisit something we talked about last night and yesterday. The last night part came at City Council. The yesterday came on London Live, and that is speed limits in the city of London. We had a lot of great thoughts to it, a lot of great suggestions, a lot of great input. But at the same time, it is up to City Council to decide what to do. What have they decided to do? The words photo and radar came up. We'll speak with Stephen Turner 
London City Councilor, next to get you updated on how that meeting went in depth. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We'll get to an email about speed limits that arrived yesterday after the show, but I want to talk about what happened last night. London City Council met. They discussed a number of different things, speed limits being one of them. And as we look at our city right now, people have certain complaints. You're allowed to have complaints, but we've got to take that wait-and-see attitude because basically I think – and. I don't know whether this is just me looking through the sunglasses that I have in the little cup holder in my car. I'm not sure, but I keep seeing the city evolve for a city that will work very well in years to come. We've just got to figure out how to fit ourselves into it. I really believe that. I think I've I've been caught up. Accuse me of drinking the Kool-Aid, whatever. But I think I have been caught up. I like what I see on King Street. I like the bike paths. No, there aren't as many bicyclists in there as maybe there should be. And other cities are experiencing that. But I think that's coming. I think we're laying groundwork. So another thing that has to be addressed is speed limits. If you are driving around a residential area and you're doing 50 kilometers an hour, there are more than a few people who will say, you're going too fast. Well, the speed limit's 50. Mm -hmm. It is. But you are going too fast. What about other parts of the city? We heard yesterday from City Councilor Ariel Cayabega, who said she was going to be talking about speed limits in the downtown area, which is her ward. Let's get the latest on the discussion from Ward 11 Councilor Stephen Turner, who joins us now. Councilor Turner, thanks for taking some time out for us. Always a pleasure. Let's look back to last night's discussion. Uh, in A description would be what? Was it a, a fruitful discussion? Was it one that will hopefully bring one day fruitful discussions? Where would you peg it? You know what? I found it a very encouraging discussion. Uh, there was uh, was very little debate uh, about whether we should be going this direction or not. Uh, the discussion really centered around um, what what components are we going to be looking at? What parts of the road system are we talking about for reduced speed limits? Uh, where in the city would those be applied? And uh, and how will we do the public consultations? So uh, it passed easily at council. And uh, what what happened? I guess what passed was. Uh, was a few things. One was uh, to go out to public consultation uh, to discuss uh, decreased uh, speeds in residential neighborhoods, uh, increased fines uh, within those areas, and uh, the introduction of photo enforcement. So those three, uh, and photo enforcement is photo radar uh, by another name. Uh, so those three elements will be put out to public consultation. We want to hear from everybody. Uh, but I've got to say, since uh, this, uh, this story broke a couple weeks ago, uh, all the feedback that I've received has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. And uh, I think this is something that Londoners are, are really ready for. Now, when you say overwhelmingly positive, is that to change things, to reduce some of those speeds, to bring in, as you say, increased fines, all those sorts of things? Yes. Uh, so one of the, the most common complaints or, or concerns that we receive as councillors, other than snow clearing, is uh, is traffic speeds in, in the residential neighbourhoods. Uh, people call and are right and they ask, how do I get uh, traffic calming put in and how do I have more enforcement? How do we get the police here to, uh, to ticket people driving too fast down our street? And, uh, and by reducing speed limits overall and enforcing that, backing that up with, uh, with photo enforcement, I think that goes a long way to addressing those concerns. Councillor Turner, where did the genesis of this come from a couple of weeks ago as, the, as you say, the story broke? 
Yeah, so a staff report was brought forward at the Civic Works Committee uh, a week ago, and uh, the reports were published uh, two weeks ago. So that's when uh, when all the reporters get to comb through them and find something, and this was something that was certainly of interest. And for me, too, uh, of interest, uh, the, uh, the recommendation was to reduce from 50 to 40 kilometers an hour, and I, I said, well, maybe we could even take a look at 30 kilometers an hour because the risk of fatal pedestrian injury decreases fairly significantly. At 50 kilometers an hour, it's 70%. At uh, uh, 40 kilometers an hour, it's 28 percent. But at 30 kilometers an hour, it's uh, it's 10 percent. So it really drops uh, significantly just in that small uh, difference in the speed that a car is traveling. Um, about uh, about three. Two, three years ago, the council adopted the road safety strategy and uh, a program called Vision Zero. And Vision Zero was started in Sweden uh, with a goal of getting eliminating traffic fatalities. Uh, and they put in a few principles, uh, these pillars, basically engineering, enforcement, technology, and education, uh, as, as the four avenues by which we can uh, increase safety on roads and decrease fatalities and injuries. We're talking with Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner. In terms of timeline for something like this, obviously this is not something where you just flip a switch and say, oh, now everything's 40 and we have photo radar at every corner. It isn't quite that easy. What do you see in terms of public consultations coming in and when those might happen and then what progresses from there? Yeah, so the consultations will happen over the next few months. Uh, we'll be talking with advisory committees and task forces uh, and interest groups around the city, but we'll also be holding public participation meetings at the Civic Works Committee uh, and uh, also uh, looking to, to solicit your feedback, whether that's by reaching out to all the councillors uh, by phone or email. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. It's really helpful to us to help guide our discussions. Uh, so that would be the first phase, and the, the next phase that's recommended and council approves it uh, uh, measures that will be adopted by uh, that would be adopted by council based on uh, by on those consultations and uh, advice of staff uh, would then be implemented uh, I'd imagine over the next couple of years it took us uh, probably about two to three years to implement all the school speed zones uh, when we adopted those uh, it takes a while to get to all those areas and post them and make sure that uh, all the signs are up so you can imagine uh, we've got uh, thousands of roads in the city and to, to get to all of them takes a little bit of time absolutely but like you say snow clearing number one and how do i get the speed reduced in my neighborhood number two uh, it's it's kind of curious that it's taken this long for uh, for an active discussion but you guys have one going so thanks for that yeah, well, thanks. It's it's interesting. I've I've heard uh, a couple points to debate, especially on on the counter side too. That says, uh, what are you doing? Is this really going to make an impact? And uh, how many people are actually hit on residential roads? Uh, uh, there's a there's a number. I wouldn't wouldn't say it's a huge number, but uh, the speed that people travel on roads influences how we interact with those roads. Uh, do we let our kids or our pets out on the front lawn if we think that the speed in front of our house is fast? Uh, do we uh, uh, do we bike or walk along those roads? Uh, and it also certainly impacts uh, how we uh, purchase homes. So if uh, homes that are on busier roads or perceived to be busier roads are less desirable and uh, and have lower selling prices than those on nice quiet roads. So having 30 kilometer an hour limits or 40 kilometer an hour limits it goes a long way to being able to help enjoy our uh, increase the enjoyment in our neighborhoods. It also helps decrease uh, cut through traffic. If the speed limits on residential roads are lower than those arterial roads, uh, if they're 50 or 60 kilometers on the arterials and it's uh, 40 or 30 kilometers an hour on the uh, residential roads, there's less incentive to just turn off onto a residential road and, and uh, try to make your way through.
One last thing, and that is enforcement, which came up a lot yesterday when we talked about this, that it has to be enforced. Photo radar would obviously assist in that. Is there anything else that has been talked about in terms of of enforcing the rules? Because you can post a speed limit of 40, it still means somebody might try and go 50 and 60. Yeah, uh, I think photo enforcement is one of the big parts. Uh, we, in, uh, a couple of years ago, we installed uh, um, red light cameras at 10 intersections, key intersections around the city where we were seeing the greatest number of collisions and injuries. We see about 1,200 uh, injuries on London roads each year. Uh, those red light cameras had a, a, affected a very marked reduction in injuries and collisions uh, and was able to uh, generate a fair amount of revenue to pay for the program itself plus have supplemental funding to be able to go into road safety initiatives across the city. So uh, the photo enforcement itself, uh, its, its upfront costs uh, are a little high, but uh, absolutely recovers its costs and is able to be able to put funds into those really key road safety things like the engineering, uh, redesigning uh, intersections and corners and curbs so that they are pedestrian, cyclist, and, and just basically people-friendly. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, without enforcement, uh, just setting the speed limit, it doesn't do much, but it has to be coupled with that. And traditional enforcement as well, uh, working with our partners in, in the London Police Service. I think they're an invaluable resource and really help to increase the safety in our city. Councillor Turner, thanks so much for the update. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner joining us to talk about last night's discussion. And photo radar is one of those things that we can have a discussion on right now, and people are going to hate it and people are going to love it. It provides a consequence. You know, why do you get a ticket? Why do tickets even exist? Why don't you just have a police officer who stands at the corner, and if you're doing something wrong, she or he shakes their finger at you? Oh, did you see what just happened? The police officer shook their finger at me. I'm never going to do that again. I don't want to see that. What if they made a scary face? Oh, I don't want to see that again. That doesn't work. A police officer could shake their finger at everybody. It wouldn't work. You could make a scary face. They could stick out their tongue. Wouldn't work. That's why we get tickets. Consequences. You must have consequences. And unfortunately, it is too difficult right now for officers to set up at every single spot, especially in residential areas. Every once in a while, you will see an officer because someone has made a point. Someone has launched a complaint saying something needs to be done. In other words, I'm not putting my kids out on the front lawn, as Councillor Turner suggested. I'm not putting my pets out on the front lawn, as Councillor Turner suggested. We had an email that arrived from Bill yesterday, and fortunately, we have Bill joining us right now. I don't even have to read you the crux of the email. Bill, you can tell us your concerns yourself, because you've taken this in a couple of other areas, and you don't seem to be completely sold on Vision Zero. Am I correct to assume that? Bill, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Everybody would like to have zero accidents and Zero death, zero this, zero that. They want perfection. This came about because a report in Europe, and I think Councillor Turner just mentioned about uh, Sweden or something. The reality is this. The provincial government downloaded to the city the right to lower speeds within the city in various areas. Everybody all of a sudden says makes them safer. Well, we have 43 neighborhoods all designed by experts 
in that over the years, but we've got 43 neighborhoods, and all of a sudden there's the issue of make them safer. Well, my question is, what's unsafe? Example, the city has a report from 2016 that shows over 1.6 million daily trips in and out of the neighborhoods. Almost 80-some percent of them are by car. My question is, how many accidents has there been? And that that would say that you're saying it would make them safer. If they haven't had an accident or that, or, or in relation to using stats. I mean, if you have a million people, 1.6 million people in and out of neighborhoods daily, how many accidents is there? How many injuries? The question is, what's reasonable? What What is the time to act? If this is such a big issue because of a risk, why don't we deal with reality? What's actually happening? All I'm saying is you've got data that shows you how small the numbers are. Why don't you show us the whole picture? Hopefully that comes out of the discussions. And by the way, all the counselors were given that information uh, before the meeting, so I, I don't know what they're doing with it. But my point is, is let's have the discussion. But if you're really serious about Vision Zero, why don't you ban drinking and driving? Because we know people die every day. Well, I mean, you can say you know, it is banned and people just do it. Just well, like no, but going over the speed limit is illegal, but people just do it. No, but, but the acceptance in, the, in Ontario, in London, is that if there's a speed limit that's 30, you can probably go 40 before you get a ticket. If mm-hmm. it's 40, you can go. So my question is, give us the data that shows the number of tickets that have been issued in relation to the number of vehicles. Um, show like give us the data because if you go just this is on risk this is is 2019 schools um, there's fewer schools there is more busing and in every area of the city in the public school board if there's a safety issue and i'll use the example of quebec street when they closed lauren ave the students that go over to the school north of that used to be Bishop Towns, and I think they've renamed it. <clears throat> they get bust because of the safety, but the city built those walks, safety walks on. In order and, to make them the safer, yeah, exactly. But, but nobody, nobody walks or rides, they, <laughs> they get a bus ride. My point is, only, only is that this because, is because they risk Right, and it's so, addressing that sort of thing. So I hope the numbers do come out. We've got public consultations coming, and Bill, I know you will be lively and involved in all of them. Got to go for news. Thanks so much for all of that. Okay. Have a great day. All right, thanks to Bill for that. If you're on hold, we can take your call in just a minute, or you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We'll break for news, which is next. This is Global News Radio 980cfpl. Very quickly on speed limits, let's go back to the phones and say hi to Richard. Good afternoon, Mike. 
Hey, Richard. How are you today? Great. I just want to make a couple of quick comments. Number one, I don't care about statistics. I don't care about numbers, and I don't care about data and all that stuff. I just care about human beings, right? And I want to let you know, Councillor Stephen Turner, I will support you in this Liberal City Council, right, when it comes to public safety. And if you feel that photo radar in our residential neighborhoods, that'll make it safer, right, for our children and, uh, and for other people, right? I, I wouldn't have an issue that whatsoever. I'm sure a mother and father who's standing over a gravesite, right, burying their five-year-old daughter or son, they don't care about numbers and they don't care about statistics, right, and they don't care about data. All they care, right, is that their child, right, wasn't safe on the streets. So anyways, I just want to let them know, Mike, that I will support them, right, when it comes to public safety. And one last quick thing I want to say to you, Mike, before you interview Andrew Shear, tell him that you have a 65-year-old caller by the name of Richard who spent 30 out of his 65 years in Saskatchewan. He worked for two former NDP premiers in that province, and he worked for a former conservative cabinet minister in that province, Lauren McLaren. He'll know him well. Anyways, you tell him I know nothing about him, absolutely, and it's time, right, that he puts himself out to Canadians and let us know who he is and what he stands for. And on that note, you have a good afternoon, Mike. Richard, you'll you'll hear that word for word, I promise you. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. I will definitely mention that. Andrew Scheer, The leader of the federal conservatives is coming up in about 35 minutes. No, 25 minutes. Look at how time is flying. Marilyn, it is great to hear from you. How are you? Well, it's good to hear for good to talk to you, my dear. Did you have a great holiday? It was fantastic. Oh, good. I'm so glad because you certainly deserve it with the commercials and and, uh, everything you do on that radio. Hey, I don't save lives. I have fun here, so my work is a vacation. My dear, you should be in a soap opera. That's the next thing for you. (laughs) But anyways, uh, no, I'm uh, uh, bravo to Richard and Walter yesterday, who was uh, uh, phoned in to um, uh, Craig Needles about the same thing. I'm all for full radar, and I'm all for slower speed limits in residential areas. And I've got children and grandchildren, as you know. And one of these days, I'm going to be a great-grandma. I know it. Can't wait for the day. (laughs) Marilyn, you have a great day. Thank you for weighing in on that. You too, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A couple of emails. One coming from James, referring to what Bill was talking about. He says, I understand what he's saying, and he's right. It's not that we can just defy the law. If the risk is infinitesimal, what value is reducing speed? I agree with him. Good point. Jude says we have signs like this on our street. Not sure if it helps, but it's like waving a finger. We as a neighborhood try. And as I open up what sign this is, uh, slow phone. Here we go. It says respect the limit. Slow down. Actually, I like that. It's, It's not the biggest sign in the world, but it does say that. Respect the limit. Slow down. If you see a sign, you're at least going to read it. If it says slow down, you're at least going to consider it. Up next... EMDC. It's not the place you want to wind up. We've heard that over and over again. And now we get something from the chief commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Renu Mandani, who wrote a really, really detailed and picture-painting letter to the Office of the Solicitor General about how bad the conditions are, about how bad inmates have it. She spoke with inmates. She spoke with corrections officers. Renu Mandani? We'll speak with us next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. When you hear EMDC, what comes to mind? Inmate deaths? Reports you've heard about unsatisfactory conditions? You've got people who say, yeah, but it's a prison. Don't let them say that. Please do not let them say that. But we have had politicians tour through. We've had, you name it, tour through. And nothing seems to change. Well, someone who recently toured through was Renu Mandani, Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And she proceeded to take what she saw and what she heard and turn it into an open letter to the Solicitor General in Ontario. And it outlined her real concerns and outlined what she saw, what she heard. And it ends up being pretty scathing. You can go to globalnews.ca or specifically you can go to 980cfpl.ca and you can actually read that letter. Just look for the story, and it's there, and there's a link to that letter. You can read it word for word if you would like to. But joining us right now on London Live is Renu Mandani, the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And Ms. Mandani, we thank you for doing this. Maybe please take us back to the moment you walked into the Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre. What struck you? Well, of course, um, like many Londoners, I'd been following um, media reporting, for example, about the conditions in the jail. I had also been contacted by some of the family members of people who have died in the facility and also uh, had been talking with the union. So I had some sense of what I might be walking into. Um, But certainly uh, there is sort of a visceral uh, reaction when you walk through uh, Elgin Middlesex. Um, You know, to put it in context, I've visited, you know, many institutions across the province uh, over the years. Elgin Middlesex ranks up there as one of the uh, sort of worst set of conditions that I've seen. I think the first thing you really notice when you enter the facility is just how crowded it is. Um, you know, cells that uh, were supposed to house one person now hold three to five people. We were able to enter an occupied cell where um, there was a full metal door with a small meal hatch, and inside uh, were two prisoners on bunk beds, um, one uh, to two people on floors, on mats, almost like a gym mats. Um, there's an open toilet which all the men and women uh, use in the in the in the same room. Um, so you get a pretty clear picture uh, when you enter a cell like that that these are conditions that are uh, dehumanizing, but also that they create incredible stress and anxiety, <clears throat> which you know unsurprisingly sort of bubbles over into violence um, at, at at points in time. Now, you mentioned the number just a few seconds ago, five. We sometimes hear the overcrowding. We'll see four prisoners in a cell. You actually saw five in a cell? Well, what I heard is that there uh, used to be program rooms on the, on the ranges. So you'd have a range that would, you know, have a number of individual cells, and, that, and then there would be one to two program rooms where people could for example, you know, participate in counseling or, uh, or, or any other programs that were being offered. 
Uh, those program rooms are slightly bigger than the individual cells, and those are the rooms where I heard that up to five people might be held um, at any given time. We're talking with Renu Mandani, who is the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, about her tour of the Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre and subsequent letter to Sylvia Jones, the Ontario Solicitor General, talking about some of the things that she saw. Now, when when we look at, at your report, it seems to have more to it. It seems to have, you know, different aspects to it than than maybe what we have seen before. More of a a picture. Why do you think that that your look at Elgin Middlesex Detention Center is maybe different from what we hear from MPPs who tour or from other individuals who tour? Well, I think first of all, um you know, these aren't facilities that, you know, a reporter or the average member of the public can just request a tour and, and walk through. So I think, first of all, uh, the Human Rights Commission uh, under the Human Rights Code has very particular powers to, uh, you know, go into institutions where there may be issues of tension and conflict. So I think that's, first of all, the case. Second of all, I think what's different is we really relied on a wide variety of sources. So not only did we tour the facility and engage with the superintendent and ministry leadership, we also had private meetings with representatives from the union, with a number of male and female prisoners, um, as well as looking at coroner's inquest, jury recommendations, and the like. So, you know, I think often when MPPs or others walk through, they do a more formal tour where they may not actually engage with people like the union or the male and female prisoners, really the people who are on the ground and who have that knowledge of the day-to-day reality of the situation. And I think that is something that, um, as Chief Commissioner, I've really tried to do because I do think Canadians um, assume that our government is treating people in a manner that, for example, complies with uh, UN minimum standards. And I think it, it is important for the public to understand what these conditions are like um, in reality because, as you very well know, the people housed at Elgin Middlesex, um, most of them will be uh, released back into the community in London. And I think people assume that those people will have received help and treatment and support in custody. And from what I saw, that that's not really the case. Ms. Mandani, when we look at talking to inmates, for instance, how forthcoming were those inmates in talking with you? Well, so I always ask for these to be private interviews. Um, and, you know, it does take a, a lot of courage to speak to us. Often prisoners will... Uh, you know, note that they fear reprisal for speaking with us. Um, but, you know, what was really striking at Elgin Middlesex is so many of the men and women we spoke to really said, I just want this to be better for other people. I don't think that this is a safe environment. I don't think other people should have to experience this. And I think that they spoke out almost very much because the situation is so uh, dire at the jail that they also felt sort of a moral responsibility to bring forward those concerns. 
We're talking with Renu Mandani, the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. You mentioned speaking with the union. Were, were you able to speak with union officials or were you able to speak with actual union members, correctional officers who work there? Yeah, so I spoke with correctional officers um, who worked at the facility. Again, um, I requested a private meeting and they too um, were quite forthcoming because you know, they very much recognize that the prison conditions um, are their working conditions and that the conditions under which they are working and, you know, in particular, the lack of training and resources and support that they have uh, means that uh, they also experience, you know, a high level of danger on a daily basis. Um, I have also spoken to union leadership. Um, so, you know, the the leadership that uh, of the um, correctional bargaining unit um, about broader issues in corrections. Um, but I think uh, Elgin Middlesex is sort of, it's not, it is one of the worst that I've seen, but I have also seen other facilities of a similar sort of nature like Ottawa, Carleton, and uh, the Thunder Bay Jail. And those, would you classify them as overall being worse than what you saw at EMDC? No, I would say that they're sort of roughly equivalent. I would say those three of the the many institutions I've visited sort of stand out, uh, often because they share the same characteristics in terms of overcrowding. And I think that that overcrowding piece really drives um, the unsanitary conditions and the danger and the failure of the government to meet the human rights obligations of people, for example, with human with mental health disabilities and addictions. I think when you have uh, an environment that really is more than you know four times its capacity, uh, it means that you're really in survival mode, and there's very little in the way of sort of proactive rehabilitative programming or uh, even. So social interactions between correctional officers and prisoners. With unsanitary conditions, did any of the inmates mention that they had gone on a big cleaning spree before you arrived in an attempt to, to spruce the place up? Yes. So that is something I hear often um, when I go to correctional institutions is sort of mostly from the prisoners. They will tell me about the extensive cleaning, painting, furniture rearrangement, um, even sometimes moving people out of ranges that I'm going to visit. Um, But, you know, so I did hear about that at Elgin Middlesex. And yet it still struck you that it was still very overcrowded and it still wasn't exactly a pristine place to be? Yeah, it was pretty uh, clear that the air quality and ventilation were not you know, it's noticeable when you enter the institution. I mean, there's very little air circulation. There's very little access to clean air or um, to to fresh air. So you really have that sense when you enter the institution. I heard a lot from uh, prisoners about issues with mold um, and sort of a recurring black mold issue. So, yeah, I think it was... I think they tried really hard, but I think when you're housing that many people, it's just, you, you just can't keep up with those minimum standards. And I think, in part, this is a reflection of the fact that Ontario doesn't actually have legislated minimum standards 
for conditions of confinement. In effect, there is no floor on what conditions of confinement should look at. And I think, you know, Londoners would probably be pretty surprised that Ontario cannot meet the UN minimum standards. That's, yeah, I, that's a shocking thing to hear. We're talking with Renu Mandani, who is the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Ms. Mandani toured the Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre and then proceeded to write a letter about her experience to Sylvia Jones, the Ontario Solicitor General. What do you hope that letter does outside of, of raising this attention? Do you hope to hear from the Solicitor General? Do you hope to hear from the Ontario government or, or have you? So I, I certainly hope to hear from the Solicitor General. I um, asked in my letter, I offered to meet with her. I have offered to meet with her on a number of occasions in relation to corrections, an area that I think the Commission has significant expertise and could be of assistance to the government in addressing these problems. I have um, received some correspondence, not in relation to this letter, but I have not yet had a meeting with the Solicitor General, and I think certainly the conditions at Elgin Middlesex warrant further discussion with the government. Well, we'll see what does come out of it, but we thank you for your time today and and your description of what the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center looks like. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me, Mike. Renu Mandani, Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Her thoughts on the EMDC. Not great ones. We'll talk more about that story in just a little bit and have a response from the Office of the Solicitor General. We are going to take a break. We'll let you know what's straight ahead on London Live next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Coming up, just after news, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer is going to join us in Elmer today on London Live in minutes. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Let's kick off this hour in a big way. In the area today, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer, made an announcement about human trafficking. And we will talk about human trafficking, and we'll also get to know Mr. Scheer a little bit better. We can know that he's from Ottawa. We know that he has eight brothers and sisters. Um, You may not know this, but he can easily sit down to dinner with a Super Bowl champion. That's something that he can do. So we'll get to all of that. But first things first, let's welcome to London Live Mr. Andrew Scheer. Mr. Scheer, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. Now, you were in Elmer today talking about human trafficking, where you unveiled a plan to combat human trafficking. If if you look at some of the keys that you wanted to make sure everyone knew, for anyone who has not heard or has not seen the press release just yet, what is included in this plan? Well, right. Uh, it's This is a multi-stage plan to help get serious with this uh, this very evil practice as you may know, many young girls are uh, preyed upon by people who groom them, who manipulate them into basically uh, entering into the, the, the human slave trade, where they, they end up being uh, prostituted out and, and, and forced to do uh, things on behalf of the people who are controlling them. And uh, so what I announced today was uh, some changes to the criminal code to make it easier for prosecutors to get convictions on human trafficking. Uh, I also announced that the uh, 
the onus would be on people accused of these types of crimes to prove why they deserve bail. Right now, uh, they're, they're granted automatic bail unless the prosecution can prove that they are going to be a danger. Uh, our plan would mean that if they've been accused and charged of these very serious types of crimes, they have to prove that they're not a risk. Uh, that keeps them off the street longer and, and keeps their victims safer. And I also announced funding for uh, rehabilitation and uh, very importantly for public awareness. It's that young girls and and uh, and young women can, can know the signs of when someone might be trying to take advantage of them, and and as well for the, the programs and services that offer rehabilitation. If we look at the definition of human trafficking at an international level, it appears to be different from what Canada currently does. Can you explain why that might be? Well, I, it's just, uh, quite frankly, a lack of action on, on behalf of this government. Uh, there are some international protocols where countries have uh, agreed to certain definitions, to uh, uh, you know, similar standards for dealing with people who are involved in this. Often these types of crimes cross international borders. You know, you can have people uh, coming into Canada from other countries, moving girls from you know, Europe uh, to, to North America, from Asia to North America. So there is definitely an international component to this, and it's very important that our laws uh, reflect the seriousness of that. So um, we, uh, we we had the uh, I, I made the announcement today that I would bring in our laws uh, up to the standards of what other countries have have already signed on to. We're talking with federal Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer, and we're talking about a human trafficking announcement that was made in Elmer today. Elmer, I mean, to come to this area, is there any significance? Should we read anything into that? Well, uh, I was first really made aware of the depth of this challenge in London, in, in the area, when I met with the uh, London uh, Abused Women's uh, Network. And that's, that's where I heard some of the stories of, of how this can happen to, to, every, to literally any family. Uh, the, the, the people there told me that you can have young girls from families with, uh, with stable home environments where you know, both parents have steady income and, and are actively involved in their children's lives, but for one reason or another, these young girls get caught up in, in this type of, uh, of issue, often because they've been manipulated and, and groomed and, and you know, they think that they're dating someone or that they're in a serious relationship with a 30- or 40-year-old who is, in fact, just, you know, uh, using them. And, uh, and that's when I got to know some of the people that are on the front lines of this. Uh, today I was at a, a place called Farmtown, which uh, not only provides respite care and a pl- safe place for young girls to go, but they also do training for people uh, literally across the country to, 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 to know how to deal with the trauma that these young girls have after they, they are pulled out of this type of lifestyle. So that's the reason why I was in the area. We all know that the, the 401, you know, between, uh, you know, uh, the, the Windsor-Montreal corridor, it, it is, uh, there are many, many instances of this, and this, is, this has been identified as a, a big problem along this route and that, Different municipalities all across Ontario and into Quebec have to, uh, you know, have better resources and, and tackle this in a more comprehensive way. Mr. Shear, how much of your conversation with the London Abused Women's Centre went into formulating the plan? Uh, well, it was uh, a great deal. You know, we consulted with stakeholders. We wanted to get this right because we know that this is a multifaceted problem. Uh, there are issues here that, that touch on everything from addictions to, to prostitution to uh, abuse and and dealing with the really the PTSD that 
young girls and women have coming out of this type of lifestyle. So th- this is one of those things that uh, requires a lot of work from different levels of the government. The federal government, we, we, we run, you know, we, we manage the criminal code. We make sure that the laws are in place. Provincial governments have more to do with the, the, the frontline services. And of course, municipalities and, uh, deal with the policing aspect of it. So uh, th- these types of conversations, you know, start in, in one aspect of it, but very quickly lead to a broad range of issues that all have to be pulled together and coordinated in a way to make sure that uh, we're keeping people safe. We're talking with the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada on London Live, Mr. Andrew Shear. Mr. Shear, we got a call from a great friend of our program not too long ago, Richard, and he had said that he had spent 30 of his 65 years in Saskatchewan. He'd worked under Lorne McLaren, whose name he felt you would know, and he felt it was time we got to know you, that we didn't, we didn't know you well enough. Is that something that you hear more than just now? <laughs> you know, the, the, the two pieces of feedback I hear the most is, first of all, uh, I didn't really realize you were so tall. I am 6'4", and a lot of that, that surprises a lot of people. And then the second thing is, you know, you need to get out there more. And, uh, and I, I have been doing exactly that. Uh, when I look at the response I was getting two years ago after I was elected leader of the Conservative Party to today, I find that more and more people recognize me, know what our, our party's about, know the vision that I have for this country. It's always a, a challenge for the leader of the opposition, especially when you have a, a prime minister that we have, uh, Justin Trudeau, who already had a celebrity status to begin with. But I'm very proud of the work we've been doing and, and laying out the, the tracks on, on which uh, we're going to build a comprehensive policy to put Canadians first, to let people get ahead, to make life more affordable, and to ensure that after working very hard, people are able to keep more and more of their hard-earned paychecks. You did unveil your economic plan last week. We'll get to that. But we'd mentioned off the top, you do have connections in your family to a Super Bowl champion. I do, yeah. Uh, and if, I should just correct one thing. Uh, I, I don't have eight siblings. My mom had eight siblings. Ah. Uh, my, mom, my mom comes from the family of nine. I, I've just got the two sisters. Okay, uh, so the but, Seton, uh, but we're looking, look at what we're learning already. So now we've got yeah, your yeah. family number down, but, but you do have a connection to a Super Bowl champion. I do. So I married into a little bit of what I consider football royalty in Saskatchewan. My my wife's brother is John Ryan, who has a ring from the Seattle Seahawks. He was in the NFL from, I, think, I believe it was 2006. He was uh, cut at the beginning of last year's season. And we just are thrilled to, to be able to share in the excitement that this week, he, last week, he signed with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So he's bringing that ring back to Regina. And uh, we're very excited to be able to watch him at Taylor Field play for the Riders. Now, have you ever been out on a football field watching him boot footballs? Uh, yeah. So uh, when uh, when he was with the Regina Rams uh, in, at university, uh, we used to you know throw the throw the ball around at uh, at different family get-togethers, and, and he would show off his his punting abilities. And uh, been to quite a few games when he when he was with the he was with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the CFL and. He was very generous. He, he was able to uh, bring us to a few of his NFL games as well. So I'm a huge football plan, fan. I love the CFL. Really enjoy watching uh, John play in the NFL as well. But like I said, really excited to have him back. It's, it's, it's extra special in the CFL, no matter what team you cheer for, when you have a, a local uh, player come up and, and make, make the team. So I imagine... I imagine probably for the first time ever, uh, punter jerseys are going to be a top sellers at uh, rider stores across Saskatchewan. 
Very nice. We're talking with the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer, and of course the CFL and the CFL Players Association have ratified their new collective bargaining agreement, so we'll have a season. You did unveil that economic plan last week, and one of the things that you talked about was making Canada energy independent by 2030, lowering greenhouse gas emissions, and eliminating what a lot of people have been unhappy about, including the Premier in this province, the carbon tax. But how do we go about lowering greenhouse gas emissions without really focusing in and putting a price on carbon? Well, uh, I would argue that the Liberal plan does not put a price on carbon. It uh, gives a massive pass to large emitters. 92% of the cost of the carbon tax is going to be borne by individuals and families, small and medium-sized businesses. And the facilities in Canada that emit the most amount, the largest amounts of emissions, uh, get get an exemption. The, The carbon tax is going to do a great job raising tax dollars for the government, but not in any way really reduce emissions. And the government, the Liberal government's own numbers show this. They, they know they're going to fall far short of their targets. And I believe that being energy independent is important because right now in eastern Canada, we are importing oil from countries like the United States, countries like Saudi Arabia, like Venezuela and Algeria. Uh, many of those countries don't have the same environmental standards we do and certainly don't have the same commitment to human rights when we're speaking about countries like Saudi Arabia. So I believe that we would be doing the world a favor if we did not support those regimes, and if we took took advantage of the fact that we have very high environmental standards here in Canada and get Western Canadian energy to Eastern Canadian markets, displace that foreign oil, get people in Canada back to work, and uh, and that's a, that's a strong vision for this country. I think Canadians are going to support. Do you feel... Canadians are able to, quote-unquote, get ahead right now? Is that is that something you feel is happening? I, I The feedback I get is that more and more families say that they're not getting ahead. Uh, survey after survey shows that uh, more and more families are not making it to the end of the month. Uh, over half of Canadian families are just $200 away from not being able to pay all their bills at the end of the month. They've stopped saving for retirement. Uh, they're they're unable to uh, you know do the types of things that they like to do with their kids. And when we're talking about young Canadians, it's also about that dream of home ownership and housing affordability. So I believe that there's a real cost of living crunch. And when we turn when we look and we see uh, this Liberal government making things more expensive with the carbon tax, raising payroll taxes, raising taxes on beer and wine with the escalator tax, when we see that they are uh, making uh, mortgages harder to qualify for with the stress tests, when they all their policies put together, uh, they throw billions and billions of dollars around, including millions of dollars to their corporate friends at Loblaws and Bombardier and, and, and things like that. But real hardworking Canadian people who go to work every day, do everything right, uh, they're not seeing any of that benefit. So our plan is going to make life more affordable and let Canadians get ahead. We do have pretty good unemployment rates right now, and we do have pretty good economic growth right now. Do, do you look at those two and say, hey, that's, that's something that does show things are going okay for somebody? Well, I, I would say that, you know, and that's something that Justin Trudeau likes to do. He, he points to those uh, numbers that economists are fond of analyzing and bank directors and people at the World Bank point to. But what good does all of that do if individual Canadians aren't seeing the benefit of it? And when, when I speak to families who, in some cases, you know, have, have people are working two jobs, they're working, picking up extra shifts on the weekend, uh, but they're not getting ahead, we have a problem. It's one thing to have low unemployment, but if all that means is that people are falling further and further into debt, it means that wages have stagnated. It means that the, the prosperity isn't helping 
the people who are actually doing the working. And it means that things are becoming more and more expensive because of a whole wide variety of issues. It's a big part of that is taxes. A big part of that is the government taking a big and bigger and bigger chunk out of your paycheck and things becoming more expensive with the carbon tax. But it's also regulate, uh, regulatory issues. The fact that houses are so expensive in many municipalities because the rules around development and timelines are so cumbersome. Those are things that need to be addressed as well. So a plan to keep taxes low, to reduce red tape and regulations and open up competitions so we can get better products and services at lower prices, those are going to be some of the pillars that we're going to build an economic strategy on. Andrew Shear, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. Shear, can I just ask about one more thing? Our friends south of the border, can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Okay. If you look at, at U.S. President Donald Trump, it, he just seems to align himself with really authoritative figures in any country that has a, a democratic election like we do. Eh, it doesn't seem to, to go you know, into his, his same tight-knit group. How do you deal with a leader like that in a country that is, is so important to Canada? Well, that's obviously a challenge for many world leaders uh, in, in many different countries. And uh, the, the current president has certainly bro- broken the mold on, on how the U.S. normally goes about its affairs on the international scene. Uh, that is going to pr- propose uh, pose serious challenges to Canada. It already has. You know, this liberal government was forced to accept so many concessions that under the NAFTA negotiations. We gave up so much and didn't get anything in return. I believe that the way to deal uh, with the United States is, first of all, to recognize that the relationship goes beyond who is in power in, 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 in each country. We've, we've had a, a very long history of being strong partners and allies, and, and that will continue. But we also have to recognize that we have to negotiate from a position of strength. And when Justin Trudeau sat down at the negotiation table and wanted to bring in a whole bunch of social issues that had you know, no bearing on market access, that didn't have anything to do with uh, free and open trade, uh, that that. that that, that was not helpful. And when he, when he chased away investment by uh, raising taxes and, and new regulations, when he went after small businesses, when more and more U.S. investors were pulling out of Canada, that weakened our position at the negotiation table. So I believe with some of these people, whether it's Donald Trump or the president of China, you have to be able to show some resolve and put your country in the strongest possible position. Would you want to renegotiate the the trade agreement, whatever whether we call it the uh, the the one that sounds like YMCA, or whether we continue <laughs> to call it the new NAFTA? Would you want to look into that again and, and renegotiate it in a different way? Yeah, well, most people are calling it NAFTA zero point five because it's uh, it's not as good as what NAFTA was, and it's certainly reduced. I look, I believe that these types of negotiations are are once in a generation uh, possibilities. Uh, Trudeau had his chance. It is the deal that exists now. What conservatives would do would be to address some of the issues that Justin Trudeau failed to address on a, on a one-off basis. So, you know, he did nothing to deal with the softwood lumber issue. Uh, he still got no assurances on things like Buy American. After months and months and months of tariffs really devastating our steel and aluminum industry, uh, we, those were finally released, uh, relieved. But that's our approach would be to, uh, you know, deal with, deal with all the things that Trudeau failed to deal with on a one-off way uh, without uh, going through the whole renegotiation process, because that, of course, uh, would send a great deal of uncertainty throughout the Canadian economy.
Mr. Shearer, it's been great getting to know you a little bit more. Six foot four, uh, you'll be paying close attention to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you very much. I look forward to that. Take care. Bye-bye. That is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Mr. Andrew Shear. So he's heard it that people want him to get out there more. People want to know more about him. Well, there's some thoughts from him on his economic plan, on where Canadians are going in their day-to-day lives, on the United States, and on what he was talking about today, which is human trafficking. If you missed that interview and you would like to hear it again, it will be made available as our podcast comes out later today. You can get that on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite shows. We'll let you know what's coming up next when we return. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Still to come on London Live, we're going to talk with someone who has donated blood over 40 times. This is something that has been kind of moving along through London Live for a few weeks now. The idea that it's time for someone who has O negative blood to donate. And that somebody is me. And we happen to have a Chorus Radio London blood donation opportunity on Friday morning. I will be there, and the guy you'll be hearing from will be there. Jay Baker will join us. We'll also talk about Rita Feeder from the Dream Lottery so that you know when the deadline is to get your tickets to take advantage of, think about this, coffee for a year or the cash. Which one would you choose? You could win that. You can throw in all kinds of other things as well because there are still all sorts of prizes available and they still have tickets available. We will have that for you as well. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We will talk about giving blood in just a moment. We'll talk about the Dream Lottery. Want to draw your attention to a little something that is coming up very soon, as a matter of fact. We had a number of companies, from Kindness Cookies to Hey Cupcake to Walkbox, Spicer's Bakery. They dropped off all kinds of things today here at Chorus Radio London because coming up very soon is the Signatures A Taste of London's Best. Happens on June 3rd at Budweiser Gardens and all proceeds support research and aid to those living with Parkinson's disease through the Parkinson's Society of Southwestern Ontario. You can go to our website and you can find some information I have a fortune cookie. Don't you like fortune cookies? I have a fortune cookie from London. The food went fast. We have a lot of hungry people here at Chorus Radio London. But let's see what this fortune says. You ready to see whether this actually works out? Uh, You will give blood on Friday morning. How did it know? No, it doesn't say that. Your innovative nature will help you come up with a solution. To what? What is it? On the back side, it's the same thing in French. Your innovative nature will help you come up with a solution. I'd, okay, I get, I, that's complimentary. I'm not particularly innovative, actually, at all. Um, and I don't really have any issues right now that need solving. Do I put this away then? Can this count for later? When I, when I have a problem, should I pull it out of my pocket? And say, hey, yeah, okay, now, don't worry, because my innovative nature is going to help me fix this. I don't know what to do. Let's move on. 
I wish it said you'll give blood on Friday. That would have been a whole lot simpler. We'll talk with somebody who has given blood over 40 times in his life when we return on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. On Friday, we are all going to be going down as part of Chorus Radio London to Canadian Blood Services and donating blood. It's something that we need to think about. Yesterday, we learned that there is a very limited supply of O-negative blood, which is the blood that is given to people whose blood type they do not know on accident scenes or in emergency rooms. It is an important thing. That's the kind of blood that they'll be taking out of me, putting into a bag, and helping somebody out. Why we have shortages, I don't know. Why have I not donated blood before? I don't know. I can't answer that. So let's talk with someone right now who joins us in studio who has donated blood an awful lot. Jay Baker joins us. He is a fantastic guy. And Jay, on Friday, you will be donating for the... 42nd. 42nd time. Yes. And you can only donate about three times a year. So this is this is going back a ways. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's every 56 days. Oh, okay. Then I've got my math completely wrong because that, that must be a little bit more than three times a year. Yeah, it used to be a higher number. And then uh, what they've done is they've lowered it for men. And then women are every 84 days, I believe. And it has to do with uh, keeping up your iron levels. Right. Yes. I've never done this. Nope. And I don't like when they draw blood for blood tests. Okay. But I have it in my head that this this has to I'm a universal donor. It's a it is a crime that I'm not doing this more often. Absolutely. And uh, we say it all the time is is everybody needs blood at some point in time or somebody you know in your life has needed blood whether it's uh, cancer patients or you know leukemia or an accident and and sometimes that that need for blood is so urgent that even knowing your blood type can make a huge difference on your own life. Right. Because it could be in a situation where if they don't know your blood type, they got to give you O. But if they know your blood type, it could change uh, what kind of blood you're given. And right now, as Kristen Unger told us yesterday from Canadian Blood Services, there's a four-day supply of O-negative blood. So that kind of blood that you're talking about, that if you don't know what yours is, they've got to give you this. That's not a big supply. Okay. So help me out here. The yeah. first time you did it, please tell me you were a little bit nervous. Uh, yeah, I, I would okay, say good. I was. Thank you for even lying. If that was a complete lie, I appreciate it. But I, well, no, I was seventeen. Really, the first time, and they came to my high school and set up one of the clinics in the gymnasium, and that's when I did it. And the probably the only reason I ever did it was because my dad always did it. And he was the one that every time he went in, he made his next appointment and he went in and he went in and he went in and he got upwards around 70 something times that he had donated before he had gone through a cancer scare and was no longer able to donate. Right. Yeah. And that's what got me started. But it was, it was, I was nervous at the time, but it was a long time ago. Okay. But overall, what do you remember from that first time? Um, what I would say is probably most anything is the, the staff like the, the people that draw the blood and the people that help you through it, they've seen everybody come through. You know what I mean? And so they're comforting and, and, and it, and it seems like you're, you're going to be, it's going to be scarier than it is. And then when it actually is happening, you go, oh, that's not that bad. It's, it's, it's pretty easy. Good, good. Jay Baker is joining us (laughs) as we talk about giving blood, which is something that everybody says, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then you don't. Well, Jay has done it a number of times now. This is 42. 42. And your brother also donates blood? He, yeah. 
And he was at 103 before he was his. He's been put on recent medication, which has now stopped him. But he went to 103 donations. That is incredible. Okay, yeah. overall, the giving blood part because there are a number of parts to actually doing this. But the giving blood part. Yep. Is that a short period of time? Uh, it depends. For me, yes. For others, longer. Okay. Why, um, what are you doing to make yours so short? <laughs> How can I learn from this? Um, I don't know. whether You might be the same thing. I don't know if it's a higher metabolism mm-hmm. that maybe affects that. Um, I tend to give rather fast. Good. Compared to other people. But um, you're not in the chair very long. Um, you know, from, from the time you sit down to the time you're over, you know, you're talking 20 to 25 minutes total. Um, and you're, you're, you're laying back. You're relaxed. There's TVs if you want. There's all kinds of people around doing the same thing. There's there's plasma over here and there's platelets over here and there's people giving whole blood over here. And uh, everybody's great. Good. You Good. Know, it, it, it's a comforting situation. What does it feel like afterward? Uh, some people get lightheaded or could feel lightheaded afterwards. But they're, again, they're there to monitor. As soon as you're done, you're sitting there for a little while. They'll ask you how you're feeling, how everything's going. And then if you're feeling good and they feel confident to let you go, then you, uh, you move off into the fun area, <laughs> which is juice, cookies, coffee, <laughs> soup, uh, bits and bites are my favorite. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Sometimes they offer a nice little selection of stuff and you sit there for a few minutes and enjoy a snack as long as you want to sit there and whenever you feel comfortable you're able to get up and go. And overall, for the rest of your day, do you wind up taking it easy? Do you yeah. kind of limit some things you do for a week? Uh, what do no, you do? No, no, no. I would say for the rest of the day, I would limit what you would do. So no strenuous activity. I wouldn't go out and mow the lawn as soon as you get home or anything like that. But I mean, you can you can make dinner. <laughs> you can do all the stuff around the house. If you've got kids, you can do all the things you have with, the, with your kids. I would just avoid maybe going out and playing baseball, hockey, gotcha. anything strenuous, yard work, anything like that. I would maybe take it easy for the rest of the day. Yeah. And then by the next day, you, you wouldn't feel any different. All right. And I don't think you even feel any different really after you leave. I, they just advise that you will, should you do anything strenuous. <laughs> And then how do you feel knowing you've done what you've done? Because when you donate blood, they always say, you've saved a life. Mm-hmm. You've now done that 41 times. Yeah. What does that feel like? It feels good. You know, like everybody does something in their own way, whether you give to a charity or give money. And this is just something I've been able to give. And it's almost ingrained in me now that I just keep doing it. And I, and I feel guilty too. There's times where I go, oh, I can't make my appointment. I'll, I'll reschedule. And then it's, and then it's a few weeks later and I went, oh, I forgot to do that. And I redo it. And if you get sick or get a cold, you go, oh, I can't do that. And you, you feel guilty. And then it, it reminds me and I'm like, and maybe it's the guilt, but I, <laughs> it, I know that I'm doing something good. I had a, a friend who went through a leukemia at a, at a young age and, uh, required something upwards of 70 blood transfusions over the time. And I think about that person going, you know, even if I prolonged the life for a couple more years or something like that, something I've done, I'm a rare blood type. So it feels, I know I'm, my blood is needed and going somewhere. Right. So what, what blood type are you? I'm a negative. A negative, which is rare. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it's, it's a, yeah, one of the rare ones. I think it's like around six to 8% of the population wow. have my blood type. Yeah. Whereas something like O negative is almost, almost 40% of the population has that. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for what you do. Thank you for reassuring me. You've, you've made me feel better and I'll see you Friday morning. I'll be there every step of the way.
Jay Baker in studio on London Live. 42 times coming up. We will take a break and we'll talk about a deadline that is on the way in the Dream Lottery. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Wow, it's been a busy show. Again, if you missed it, you can catch the podcast later. If you missed the interview with Andrew Shear, uh, you can find that on our 980 CFPL Twitter feed, or I will retweet that in just a moment. We are joined by another very special guest. Wow, this is amazing to have all this company in the studio. Rita Feeder joins us from the Dream Lottery. Rita, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It is great to see your smiling face because that means that we have dream lottery opportunities. And because we haven't seen you in a little while, I'm thinking we have a lot of dream lottery opportunities. We do. There's a deadline coming up midnight tomorrow and you don't want to miss out. I mean, this is a chance at getting a vacation or taking the cash. Coffee for a year or taking the cash. Free tickets But you've got to get in by midnight tomorrow. And with tickets over 85% sold, time is running out. Okay. Midnight tomorrow is the deadline. Before we get into coffee for a year or the cash, this is fantastic. Uh, How do we make sure and get our tickets? So you can visit our dream home tomorrow because we'll be open till 7 p.m. You can go online at dreamatwinit.ca. You can go to Shoppers Drug Mart. You can call 519-488-7100. But regardless of which way you get your tickets, get them before midnight tomorrow. Anyone who had a chance to see any of the pictures when the dream home first opened its doors knows how amazing it is. Where is the location for people who want to find it? So it is in Wickerson and uh, there's signage direct you out there go online we've got maps the homes are stunning stunning we've got a french provincial we've got an industrial in grand bend we've got the cottage one of three dream homes don't want a home one million cash amazing rita feeder joining us from the dream lottery okay we have to go back just a little bit can we talk to you after the fact for the social experiment of whether someone would take coffee for a year or the cash for that i think that might be one of the toughest decisions out there this year I think that'll be a tough one. For me, it's going to be the coffee. That's what I thought. And that's what I would be thinking. I need my Java. (laughs) (laughs) What a great addition. You always find new ways to work different things in. What are those meetings like when, when you're brainstorming and getting everything ready? Do you know what? They're so much fun because we are dreamers. And so we sit together and we just honestly go into this little dream world of all the great things that people would want to win. And obviously, it's proven right because we're over 85% sold and uh, we're on our way to another early sellout. Are there dreams still out there that that you will one day maybe be able to realize for future dream lotteries? We're dreaming every day. (laughs) (laughs) I like to know that. Rita Feeder joining us from Dream Lottery. Tomorrow at midnight, the VIP deadline. It is so important to get tickets early, isn't it? It is. It truly is. We are going to sell out early, and if you want your chance to win more, you got to get your tickets now. And once tickets are sold, it's not like you can say, oh, don't worry, we'll just print up a whole bunch more. We'll, we'll make more. If you don't get them, 
you don't get them, right? Exactly. Once we're sold out, we're sold out, and you'll have to wait till the next lottery. Okay, so let's talk one more time about the things available to you if you can get in in time for the VIP draw tomorrow. The deadline is midnight tomorrow, so that would be 12 o'clock a.m. Thursday, Friday. Right? Correct. Okay, let me say that again. 12 o'clock a.m. Friday. So tomorrow the day goes by, midnight strikes. If you don't have your ticket, Rita, what do we miss out on? You miss out on the VIP draw, which is a vacation valued at $10,000 or walk away with the cash, coffee for a year or walk away with the cash, and free tickets. And people do win on free tickets. Dreamitwinit.ca. Head there. Visit the Dream Homes. They are phenomenal. And Rita, thanks again for coming in and talking. Thank you. Rita Feeder, there she goes from the Dream Lottery. So midnight Friday, so 12 a.m. Friday, but it's technically midnight tomorrow. Why have we not developed a better system for time? We've had a lot of time to do it. Why? Well, midnight, does that mean like Thursday night as well, before I go to bed or is that midnight Friday morning? That's difficult to figure out. So think about it this way. It is tomorrow at midnight, which is technically 12 a.m., Friday. Make sense? Just get your tickets. Dream it, win it, .ca. We talked earlier on London Live with the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Raina Mandani, and she talked about her experience going through the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. She talked with correctional officers. She spoke with inmates. You'll be able to hear that interview on the podcast. You'll find it at 980cfpl.ca if you not if have not heard it yet. Just want to close out the show by bringing you what we have back from the office of the Solicitor General, because essentially what Ms. Mendani did was write a letter, and it talked about mental health not being recognized. It talked about unsanitary conditions. She talked about what the air was like, where there really isn't any air circulation. We've heard about the overcrowding for years. She talked about gym mats on the floor for two inmates while two other people had bunks. They were right beside the open toilet. I mean, this is not right that we have a situation like this. So, she expressed it very well. She painted a better picture than I have seen anybody else paint about the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center in a letter. We have lawyers like Kevin Egan. He has been very, very vocal about this. But this this seemed to sum everything up in a nice list. Here's what we received back from the press secretary of the Office of the Solicitor General. I'm going to read this word for word. It says, The previous government left our corrections system in a horrible state. We've been clear in our commitment to make EMDC and all correctional institutions safe for all staff and inmates. Minister Jones has traveled to EMDC, and that's Minister Sylvia Jones, who is the Solicitor General, has traveled to EMDC to meet the staff there in person. This will directly inform our work at EMDC. Some action have already been taken, but more must be done. We've already announced a new plan to enhance security and improve safety at Elgin Middlesex. We have taken action by providing enhanced training for staff, increasing the number of random cell searches, and using a canine team to detect and serve as a deterrent to contraband. We have installed full-body scanners and are also exploring the use of ion scanners for contraband detection. We've also increased doctor's hours and hired an addictions counselor and three new social workers. Mental health and addictions aren't isolated to our institutions. They're community-wide issues, which 
which is why we have promised a historic investment to build a better mental health system. Our government recently announced $174 million in funding for mental health and addiction support, with $18.3 million dedicated to the justice sector to help address these complex issues. So that's coming from the press secretary of the Office of the Solicitor General. You know what it is that we want? And it's a simple thing. Better conditions. That's it. Yes, they are inmates. No, they do not deserve to be treated the way that they are being treated. And having the chief commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission go through and outline everything, hopefully that is something that kickstarts some real action. Not just words. Real action. We're out of time. Thank you so much to Kelly Wong. London Live brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.